Trevor Alpern, the team want to brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor for Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And in this episode, as he does in every episode, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. In particular, uh, Cameron in this episode turns his attention to the Miami Marlins. Uh, of course, uh, not uh, very long ago, in the, I should say in the near uh, past, the recent past, what's called the recent past, the Miami Marlins uh, have conducted a trade with the Toronto Blue Jays that has seen Jose Reyes, Josh Johnson, and a couple other uh, valuable pieces go to Toronto in exchange for Yunel Escobar, Dani Echeverria, and a couple of other pieces. It is not unreasonable to suggest that that trade uh, that the Marlins have conducted with the Blue Jays is a sort of a white flag, a sort of surrender, and uh, probably an abandonment of all hope uh, for the 2013 season. Cameron argued in the electronic pages of Fangraphs on Monday, uh, he argued uh, as to why he does not care for those teams that, that do in fact completely abandon a season, especially if they, uh, like the Marlins did with Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, etc., uh, Josh Johnson, especially when they actually have uh, uh, assets uh, with which to compete. Cameron and I approach this uh, entire scenario in a number of, of different ways and uh, get involved at some point uh, into a discussion of the art world for which neither of us uh, is particularly qualified. I also asked Cameron about the 2013 iteration of the Toronto Blue Jays, wh- what it looks like now, what they look like now, especially with uh, also the recent addition of Melky Cabrera. And we, uh, we, the both of us, ridicule our colleague and uh, friend, Eno Saris. Uh, we do that as well. In any case, yes, this is uh, Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Trying, I'm uh, doing a knockoffs piece with Eno, um, partially based on uh, Matt Caesar, the Cubs outfield prospect. Yeah. Or inspired slightly by him, by his name, because uh, I was imagining Eno trying to pronounce it. <laughs> and I don't think you, I don't think he would do a very good job at it. Yeah, probably not. Uh, so I'm going to do the Eno Saris guide to um, to pronouncing baseball names. Nice. Uh, so I'm going to give him some prompts. Like I'm going to send him via uh, like G Chat or whatever uh, a name that I want him to pronounce, and then he's going to pronounce it, and then I'm going to post it to the <laughs> internet. <laughs> that will be great. That will be my favorite thing in quite a while. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I actually I'm not going to check to see whether it's right or wrong, but I'm going to let our audience know that it's probably wrong. <laughs> you should probably pronounce it the opposite. Right, exactly. Whatever he says, just know that that's not right. Yeah, just know that that's not right. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Because uh, uh, for anyone who's listening right now, uh, you should know that Eno Saris is uh, particularly he, – he has a particular capacity for mispronouncing names. Yeah, or just making up uh, sounds and and adding random syllables to people's names when they don't belong there. Right. So actually, so the way I'm handling it is I just looked at the like the most recent Baseball America prospect guide, just in the index or whatever, at names that I thought would be difficult. But he actually pronounces like easier names. Right. Or, you could go with like Joe Smith and he might pronounce it like Joseph Smithy or something. Right, yeah. I figured this was the most expeditious way to reach that end though, so... Right. Um, so that's actually happening in, in 25 minutes from now, I'm calling him. So, Cameron, you only have 25 minutes of obligation to <laughs> Fangraphs Audio right now. No worries. I will talk fast. 
Okay, yeah, I know you will. Um, you talked about the uh, – you did a long piece today for, uh, for yeah. this, this site. 2,500 20, 20, words. I right. started out thinking it would be like 1,000, and, and then I just kept going. Yeah, and I think that – so I, I have some – I don't know if I have bones to pick, but I'm interested in exploring it a little bit. Your basic argument – correct me if I'm wrong – well, your basic argument occurs in the title is that you don't particularly care for teams that, that, uh, uh, that lose on purpose. Or I guess you call it a lose on purpose. What do you mean sort of is liquidate their their talent uh, with a view towards rebuilding? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with rebuilding. I just don't see a lot of value – in the argument of we think we're going to be bad, so we should just accept that fate, uh, trade away all our good players, and wait for our prospects to develop and hope that in five years that we have enough of those prospects pan out that we can be good again. I just think that, that there's placing too much uh, certainty in what we know about the future. And I think we see this you know, all the time. I mean, you know, not to pick on you too much, but I think last year when the Nationals signed Edwin Jackson, uh, you wrote a post that basically said, I don't really get why the Nationals are doing this. They're probably not ready to contend you know, couldn't they have spent this money on prospects instead, is probably a pretty good thing that the National signed Edwin Jackson last year. And I think, in general, teams on the bubble who look like they might not be contenders should still make improvements as long as those improvements uh, don't interfere with their long-term ability to win. So, okay, so the, the, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the Marlins finished last uh, in last in the NL East, right? Yeah. They had maybe 69 wins. Does that a sound right? Yeah, uh, that sounds sound right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not a lot of wins, and that's after signing. That's after spending quite a bit of money in free agency. Now, I think it's pretty clear that they may not have spent all of that money in the most efficient way possible. Uh, but I think Jose Reyes worked out, uh, you know, about the same as we might expect. And I think Mark Burley, he kind of continued to do what Mark Burley does. Yeah, I mean, but I think if you look at why the Marlins were bad last year, it wasn't the high-paid guys they just got rid of. I mean, they had Giancarlo Stanton, Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, Josh Johnson. These guys were pretty good. They just had a lot of crap on the roster. Like, the, the downside of their roster was pretty terrible and uh, dragged the rest of their star players down. But I think, you know, one of the interesting things is we hear from a lot of people in favor of kind of a stars and scrubs roster construction about how easy it is to replace zero-win players with two-win players and that's why you should kind of focus on getting a core in place and then spending the rest of your offseason just kind of tweaking the role players. Basically, what the Marlins have done, they've basically built a championship core, or something not too terribly far from it. When you look at Stanton and Reyes and Johnson and Burley, and, you know, they had, you know, six or seven players that you could look at and say, these guys are everyday players on a winning team. It's the other 15 or 20 that need to be replaced. Those are supposed to be the easy 15 or 20. Instead of doing that part, they just got rid of the good players instead. Yeah, they didn't really have – I mean, I don't know. I guess the – well, I, Emilio, any time I come up with, like, a position for them, like whether it's third base or center field or, you know, shortstop when Jose Reyes is injured, it's Emilio Bonifacio at every position. Who, right. They, he plays a, a lot of spots. Yeah, which I guess makes him a valuable player. But, um, uh, of course, he's not on their – I think he got sent along in the trade to Toronto. He did, yeah. He, yeah, he was arbitration eligible. He was going to make, like, $3 million, and now that's, that's too much for the Marlins again. Okay. So, so what 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 would be the proper tag? I mean, what what would have been for you, in, in, say, like in particular, if you're a fan of the Marlins, or you know, we could say realistically, you're an interested party insofar as your job is to write about baseball and think about these sorts of things. If what would be this for you, the sort of ideal way for the Marlins to have approached uh, their 2013 season? 
Well, I think if we start with the basic assumption that the goal is to win, and I think that assumption is no longer clear, but if we set that as the ground rule and say the overarching goal for the Marlins organization is to win and they're okay with keeping their payroll around where it was last year so that we, you know, set aside what we know about Jeffrey Loria. If that's the idea, I don't think they needed to trade away Jose Reyes and Mark Burley and Josh Johnson in order to construct a winning team around them. They needed to upgrade at uh, third base. They needed Logan Morrison, Morrison to move to first base to remember how to hit. Uh, they needed to find, you know, a better back end of the starting rotation rather than giving a whole bunch of starts to scrubs and guys who are going to get pounded. Uh, they needed to, you know, <laughs> replace Heath Bell with a better closer, which they basically did in the second half of the season when it was Steve Ciszek, but, you know, improved the bullpen in front of him. They needed to find uh, quality, useful role players, kind of not that dissimilar from what the Giants did uh, last winter when they went out and said, okay, you know, we didn't have a good enough year, we didn't have enough good, good enough offense, but we're going to go steal Angel Pagan from the Mets, we're going to, you know, trade Jonathan Sanchez for Melky Cabrera, uh, you know, we're going to make moves for bit players or role players who aren't making a ton of money who will fill in around the guys we're going to get, and, you know, then if we're actually winning in midseason, we'll trade some prospects for 100 pence, and, uh, you know, we'll go at it from that direction. Maybe the Marlins, you know, uh, aren't quite where the Giants were a year ago, but they weren't that far from it, and I think with some, uh, you know, decent low-cost flyers and solid role players, they could have had an 80, 85, maybe even a 90-win team again next year. So let, let me ask you this question that, that's t- uh, related to some degree. Um, before these trades, uh, you know, before certainly before the big trade, maybe even before the Heath Bell trade too, although I don't know, uh, you know, what sort of effect that had substantively on uh, the Marlins' probable win-loss record for uh, 2013, but certainly before the trade with the Blue Jays, uh, if you were to project the uh, likely win totals, forecast likely win totals, given their present rosters, uh, who would you give a higher likely win total to? Uh, the 2013 Marlins, again, pre-trade, or the 2013 Baltimore Orioles? Uh, probably the Marlins. I, I mean, I think, you know, we know that the Orioles are not going to do what they did in one run game, the next running again next year. The AL East, it looks like it's going to be down, but, you know, I think it's unlikely to expect the, the Yankees and Red Sox to be bad. They just might not be amazing. Uh, I, I would say I'd put both of them around 75 to 80 wins, and uh, given that I, I like the core of the Marlins better, which is now the core of the Blue Jays, uh, a little bit more than I like the core of the Orioles, I'd probably give a slight edge to Florida uh, or Miami, assuming that they actually would have gone out and you know, replaced some of the crap on their roster with actual major league players. Let me ask you this, because I think, I think it, um, we're always affected by certain biases that we have as fans slash analysts. Um, now, of course, you have spent a lot of time thinking about the Seattle Mariners, and I'm sure that to some degree the fact that you've covered the Mariners for so long has informed um, has informed your thoughts and opinions on this matter of, of how teams should handle the business so far as talent is concerned, so far as uh, putting – you know, so far as attempting to win. I, I mean, I guess I would say, first of all, do you think that's the case? And, you know, even beyond that, let, let's take for granted that's the case – how do you think that that covering the Mariners for so long um, might color your opinions on this matter? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the case. There's no question about it. I would say, like, what I've seen with the Mariners is through this, you know, perpetual losing cycle of the last decade, uh, we've seen a team that, you know, in the turn of the century uh, was running payrolls in the top ten and sometimes even in the top five of all of Major League Baseball, drawing three-plus million fans per game, uh, had essentially – become the major sports team in the Seattle area. 
uh, and they've thrown that all away. And, you know, some of it through just terrible management, but some of it also through uh, intentional losing through rebuilding. And uh, watching the, the fans just ignore Safeco Field as an entertainment venue, which has led to, you know, payrolls that have dropped from $120 million five years ago to $80 million last year. Uh, so you basically cut $40 million off of the team's ability to, to spend uh, at the same time the team payrolls are going up. So last year the Mariners' payroll was, I think, 17th or 18th in baseball. Uh, so relative to the rest of the league, they're spending significantly less than they used to. Part of that is we don't have good players to spend it on. But, uh, you know, there were certainly guys they could have bought last winter that would have improved the team, and they decided not to. And, you know, I think that uh, when you look at what the Mariners end up doing and, you know, kind of a, uh, the continuing uh, fan aversion to coming to Faceco Field, uh, it's a problem that they have decided not to invest in previous years. You know, they're making noises about changing that this offseason. But I think when you look at a team that's, you know, going to win 75 games and you have a chance to push that to 80, 81, if you, you know, make some smart moves that are, you know, maybe not long-term solutions in terms of getting a franchise player, but, you know, a guy on a short-term one-year deal could, you know, boost the back of your rotation a little bit more than Kevin Millwood. I think that's a move that could have garnered them some goodwill from some fans, maybe gotten them some more season tickets, increased their revenues and uh, put themselves in a chance to win uh, and spend more in the future. And I think that's really what any fan wants is more winning and, you know, more spending and uh, kind of an increasing cycle of um, wins and money to go hand in hand. Now, it's possible that uh, one could make the argument that, so as you say, like especially for a team with a larger fan base, right, there's always a desire there to have your team winning. Or, you know, I think we can accept that to be the case. Now, uh, perhaps the Marlins are an exception to this because maybe they don't really have fans. <laughs> well, I think uh, the, I think that the idea that the Marlins don't have fans is a little bit flying in the fact of the uh, you know attendance increase last year was the largest in Major League Baseball. Yes, they had a new stadium. There's no doubt about it. But they went from 18,000 fans a game to 27,000 fans a game. It's not an insignificant increase. Uh, you know, you might be able to argue that not all of those fans would have come back to watch the giant you know, neon fish statue in center field, and that would have been a novelty that wore off, as we know new stadium effects do, uh, you know, wear off over time. But if they were the winning team on the field, I'm sure some of those would have stuck around. And I, I don't think that the, the Marlins, uh, I don't think there's evidence that the Marlins uh, can't draw fans in the same way that there's evidence that the Rays and A's can't draw fans. Uh, I think, you know, you put a winning team in Miami, it's a big city, uh, there's a lot of corporate sponsorship opportunities there. Uh, you know, other sports franchises have been just fine there. I, just, I don't see a whole lot of evidence that says uh, that Miami can't be a successful baseball market. Now, look at this. Here's a here's a question. The okay, so so the Marlins traded away to to the Blue Jays. Uh, they traded away Jose Reyes, which is a big part of their team from last year. They traded away Mark Burley. Uh, they traded away, uh, I guess, John Buck. They traded away um, one player. I'm certainly missing right at the moment. Josh Johnson. Oh yes, Josh Johnson was very good. That's that's a fact. Yes, Josh Johnson is very good. Okay, they traded away a lot of players um, uh, and a lot of good ones. But uh, here, here's a question. Now, one thing that they did that's you know, I mean, is smart at some level is they they received a number of prospects or younger players at least in re, in uh, in return. Now, some of those uh, players are Henderson Alvarez, who despite having sort of you know, I guess we might call good tools as a pitcher, has not really produced. A lot, uh, although he did have some some better starts at the end of 2012, uh, and and then some some probably some more upside or higher upside uh, prospects like um, like Jake Mrisnik, 
uh, and and uh, Justin Nicolino, um, who you know who could end up uh, to be decent outfielder and uh, and uh, pitcher uh, respectively. Now they have those prospects and they've freed up that part of their payroll. Here's a question, just as sort of a of a, a, a thought experiment: Is it possible, given the free agents that are available now, that that the Marlins could, in fact, cobble together a team that you project to win 81 wins. Like, what if they signed Hamilton? What if they signed Anibal Sanchez, et cetera? Uh, yeah, it's not possible. <laughs> I guess the, the the idea is that you could take this money and go sign a free agent with it doesn't live in the reality of the fact that free agents have to agree to go there. And I think, you know, when you look at uh, the fact that Reyes and Burley signed last year under the pretense of this being a new way uh, forward for the organization that, you know, apparently the management told them, even though they weren't getting no trade clauses in their contracts, the plan was not to ship them off in one year. Uh, I just think that any prominent free agent who has a choice is not going to want to go to Miami. I mean, they signed Juan Pierre the other day because Juan Pierre wants to play. I think that's the kind of player the Marlins can find as a guy who, you know, might not have a full-time job anywhere else in baseball or will have at least, you know, significantly more playing time uh, in Miami than somewhere else. But you know, if Josh Hamilton's looking at it and saying, hey, I can go play for Baltimore, I can go play for Philadelphia, I can go back to Texas, uh, you know, I can play on a contending team, uh, or I can go play on a team that's going to be terrible uh, in front of an empty stadium with a horrible statue in center field. Uh, I just don't see any real reason, even if the Marlins significantly outbid the rest of the um, baseball. I mean, they did that last year with, C.J. Wilson, they offered him more than the Angels, and, and C.J. Wilson still went to Miami. Albert Poole said he wouldn't sign there, in large part because they won't offer no trade clauses, and then he was justified a year later. Uh, I just don't see any reason that any of these players are going to accept a long-term contract to go play with Marlins when they know there's a decent chance that the Marlins could then trade them anywhere they wanted in 12 months. The, the thing that the Marlins have done, and the thing that you know sometimes teams do generally, which is this like total purge, of of present talent, or at least expensive present talent, right? So like Giancarlo Stanton is obviously very good. You know, there's a very strong chance he could be a five-one player in 2013. Um, but this purge of more highly paid talent has it. I will say now, you mentioned before that if we say that the ground rule is to win, uh, then then what they've done is certainly has not benefited them at least for 2013 and maybe beyond. Uh, it, but, however, I will say that from an aesthetic point of view and from a – just sort of like the things that can happen in the league, that there's something satisfy about it, satisfying about it in, in this sort of purge. It, it, to me, it's almost like it's – like, it's like what what Lent is supposed to be. Do, do, do you celebrate Lent? Is that a thing or is it just a uh, Catholic thing? Yeah, that's, that's like Catholic. It's a Catholic thing. But there is that quality where, where you find this too before uh, – or maybe after uh, moments of sort of indulgence, you have these moments of like serious austerity and self-denial. It's almost it's like baseball asceticism almost. It's like if we're not going to be, if we're not going to win, and the best we can hope for is decent, then we're going to take control of our own fate and be terrible, right? And just really like really experience terrible. Uh, and of course they've done this before, uh, so it's not very shocking for them. But maybe it's because of course Jeffrey Loria. Uh, uh, Loria sounds Italian to me. He probably is Catholic. Maybe for him, this is baseball Lent. But I think the thing with Lent, right, is that you do this to yourself. You don't necessarily impose Lent upon other people. Right? So I wouldn't come to you and be like, well, I had a bad year, so you now can't eat meat for three months. Uh, you know, 
I think in general teams need to see themselves as like kind of the steward of their fan base's hope, and they need to be careful with that stewardship and kind of understand that there's a you know a valuable commodity there that they have the ability to crush. And, yeah, uh, well, I think, I think it's clear the Marlins, and Marlins, Loria, et cetera, they don't feel that way. Right, they should. They, they don't, but they should. But I think you know with your analogy, it falls apart because we're now enacting our. Uh, desire to feel pain and torture upon others rather than just on ourselves. Uh, yeah, well, certainly the Catholic Church as a whole does not mind. Uh, does not mind. Um, it does not mind uh, suggesting that or placing those rest- uh, constraints on on you know on the believers within the church. So in this case, in the, in this metaphor that I've constructed poorly, uh, Loria is not unlike. He, he has the owner of the team is not unlike that that sort of figurehead that would suggest that, and it is uh, then as a Marlins fan you are forced to experience that. So you're comparing Jeffrey Laurie to the Pope? I, I was trying not to, because <laughs> uh, I think if we're going to pick someone in baseball to be infallible, he is near the bottom of the list. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, although I don't know if you've noticed this, that uh, turns out maybe not all the higher ups in the Catholic Church are. <laughs> Are entirely infallible. Uh, right. Theoretically <laughs> infallible, maybe. Yeah, right. Theoretically infallible. Um, do we know what sort of art dealer Jeffrey Loria is? Is he good uh, at, is he good at that? Uh, My guess is a fraudulent one. Yeah. But that's just a little big guess. Maybe different tactics are accepted. I, don't, I know very little about the art world. Uh, I mean, uh, I accept. So I read this, this, this column, like, I don't know, a year ago or something. They kind of delved into. Uh, the modern art world and how it has basically just become a total sham. Like, I don't know if you ever saw that documentary about the, uh, what, exit to the gift shop, the Banksy documentary. Oh, where no, basically I didn't. it just shows, like, uh, there was this guy who was nothing and didn't do anything and just copied everybody else and through, uh, a total farce, he became like this well-renowned street artist selling paintings for millions and millions of dollars when he had, like, no actual talent. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, clearly I'm not an art appreciator uh, myself, so I could be totally off base. But my my guess is that a lot of the uh, valuing of art and trying to figure out uh, what is art and what is bad art is about as logical as the BBWA MVP criteria. Right. Well, I mean, I guess it's a question at some level. I mean, there there are a couple things going on, right? But in terms of being able to sell it, it's just a question of having a market for it, right? So if you if you assume that one other person will buy it at this price, then it's worth owning at that price, I assume. Right. I mean, it seems like Jeffrey Loria has a skill set that makes him good at selling overpriced crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe he's figured out, like, there's an exploitable market in the art world of people who will buy junk for a lot of money because they're foolish, and and he's essentially trying to replicate that model in baseball. Well, I mean, you could say junk for a lot of money. I mean, that's the thing is, like, a painting is always worth more than the sum of its parts, right? I mean, it, it has it has a lot to do with, I guess, the story that surrounds it. Like, this, you know, the way you – if you want to be cynical about it, you would describe it like the branding of, of it, right? I mean, that's – it's like if you put together the raw materials of Picasso's Guernica, it doesn't equal, like, 50 or $100 million or whatever, right? But it's it's worth that because of the – because of the the sort of story that surrounds it and and what it represents, I mean, it's not like you're like, well, these paints uh, clearly cost X number of dollars, and that's therefore it's going to be. So in a sense, like if you want to, so calling it crap is 
you know, whatever. And I, but this does not, I guess that particular thing does not, um, translate to baseball particularly well because when you buy a commodity in baseball, aka a player, right? Like, there are like pretty real consequences. Like, he's going to produce a certain amount in terms of wins. And then if those wins add up, you know, over the course, you know, over the, the, uh, throughout a roster, then you have a playoff spot and you get money for a playoff spot. Right. I mean, in baseball, it's more like Laureans collecting painters than paintings, right? So, like, you could argue that the, you know, there's painting by Picasso or Monet or Monet or whichever one had syphilis. Uh, you know, I think probably you both. Say, ahead, yeah, yeah pro- probably both. Uh, I think if you were going to, you know, purchase those paintings, you're already seeing the end result. Where in baseball, you're basically picking people who you hope could paint, right? You're like saying, oh, I think this guy has talent at this at this thing. So it's not yeah, exactly a, yeah, a possible right. thing. Where you know, if the question is, if Jeffrey Laurie could identify good art, could he identify good painters? Right, people who it's like it would almost be like. I don't know if it's the case anymore, but you know, signing a contract, like as a as a movie studio, signing a contract with a director, right? You're like, you're going to do three movies for us, and you hope those are, those movies are good, right? You as the as the studio, you hope they're good in terms of their capacity to make money, and or you hope they're good in the capacity to strengthen the brand of your movie studio. I guess that's the, that would be the equivalent. Uh, maybe, although I think you could say a director is maybe like the manager, the general manager or someone, right? Because, like, I mean, you know, he's essentially a general contractor who's going to go out and sublet and hire out actual talent. Yeah, uh, yeah, players, yeah. they're more like the actual product themselves. Okay, uh, um, we've uh, belabored an, an analogy, uh, I think, about as far tortured. as we could. Tortured. I tortured, yes. Like uh, but yeah. with uh, three minutes, though, uh, tell me about the Blue Jays, uh, their 2013 version, because in addition to this trade, um, the course of which they didn't really lose much, uh, except for in terms of like projected starters. I think only a Danny Echeverry, Echeverry was you, even. You know Escobar as well. Oh, of course. Yeah, sorry, sorry, my bad. Uh, you know Escobar. Um, were they, they were only sort of projected to be starters, but they've clearly, you know, they've replaced them. Uh, you know, whoever was going to play shortstop, whether Escobar or Echeverry, with you know, with Jose Reyes, who's really good. And then uh, they've signed Omar Infante. No, not Omar Infante. They've signed uh, Mazuris Turris, um, who's now his deal looks good because he's getting paid for a starter's role. Question. 2013 Toronto Blue Jays, also with Milky Brighton and that. Uh, quick, go. Well, you said I had three minutes, and then you, you took three minutes to ask the question. No, no, so I did. I like had only a minute and a half at the most. <laughs> uh, I think the Blue Jays are going to be good. I think, you know, 85 to 90 wins is, seems like a reasonable expectation. Uh, you know, as I heard today, there's obviously a big swing on either side of that, so it could be 75, it could be 100, who knows. Uh, I think they're definitely viewed as contenders now. Uh, they're probably ahead of um, Boston and Baltimore. I'm not sure if they're quite to New York or Tampa Bay's level yet, but they're close. And yeah. I think, you know, with a, a little bit more offseason to go, they could put themselves at the very top of the American League. Okay, that is uh, Dave Cameron's hot sports opinion about the Toronto Blue Jays and uh, the, specifically their 2013 uh, team. Uh, we've also heard him talk about the Marlins and also before that the Marlins. Cameron, thank you, thank you for participating in this uh, slightly truncated uh, but no less magical edition of uh, Fangraphs Audio in which Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Uh, happy to be with you and now go Mark you know, Farris. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Uh, well, stick around for a second. That has been Dave Cameron, our managing editor. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.